in the village of Honiton in southwest England for the last 800 years, the town has gathered in the streets on one day every summer to catch pennies thrown from upstairs windows. It's, rooted, it's, it's one of those peculiar English traditions that, like many others, is rooted in the English class system. 800 years ago, the tradition began when, during the weekly market, rich people decided to start throwing pennies down upon the poor plebeians in the streets below. In the 13th century, a silver penny was worth half a day's wages for a laborer, valuable enough that people even chopped them in half. Today, it would be like people running around to collect $50 bills that had been thrown out. Nothing to turn your nose up at. Unless, of course, you were filthy rich. And unfortunately, those filthy rich people really had it in for the poor people of Honiton because before they threw those pennies out, they heated them up to very high temperatures in the ovens of the pubs so that when those poor people were hit by the pennies, they were burnt. When they tried to pick them up, they came away with burns all over their hands. Yet, that did not deter the plebeians of Honiton from running around gathering what today would be the equivalent of hundreds of dollars that were being thrown away every second by the rich people, laughing as they did it. You know, there's always been a divide, hasn't there, between the financially rich and the financially poor. There's always been inequality between those who have wealth and those who don't. And in today's passage from the Gospel of Luke, we're going to hear Jesus teach on this subject of the inequality of wealth. And I believe that he's going to give us a biblical perspective on the injustices that can often result from such inequalities. My name's Ellis. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to Chapel Hill, whether you're joining us in person or you're joining us online. Thanks for bearing with us as we refinish the stage. We're not allowed to walk on it this morning. Don't worry, we'll be back to normal next week. We're continuing our series through Luke's Gospel, one of the four biblical accounts of the life of Jesus. We're skipping ahead a little bit from last week. We already covered one of the intervening passages. We're going to cover the others later. And we're going to hear a story this morning from the lips of Jesus that is found in Luke chapter 16. So if you want to grab a Bible from the pew in front of you, Luke chapter 16, grab your phone, your Bible app, you can turn there now. One uh, we're going to be introduced to two main characters in this story. And you'll notice that one of these characters is named Lazarus. And you might think, well, I know Lazarus. He was the one Jesus raised from the dead, the brother of Mary and Martha. Well, actually, Lazarus was the third most common male name in Jesus' day. It was a bit like the name John in the U.S. today. And so this parable is not about that Lazarus. It's about a different Lazarus. And, and I said parable. Many people think that this is a parable, but if it is, it's the only one where Jesus uses a person's first name. And that leads some people to believe that this is actually a true story. Now, regardless of whether it's a parable or a true story, through this story, Jesus teaches us three things about the injustices that often result from the inequalities of wealth and how we as his followers should respond. So, we're in Luke 16. We're going to begin in verse 19. Jesus speaking. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen 
and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So Jesus introduces us to these two main characters in the story. One man who's unnamed and another man who's named Lazarus. And the description of the two shows us just how unequal their status was. The first man is described by Jesus as rich. The second man is described as poor. The first man is clothed in purple, which is a a costly dye that came from sea snails and was the, the symbol of the ruling class. Incidentally, it's also the color Pastor Mark chose for the carpet in the sanctuary. Although he tells me that's something more to do with communion wine being spilt all over it than anything else. Anyway, the first man was dressed in purple. The second man was clothed in sores, which the dogs came and licked. The first man, Jesus says, feasted sumptuously every day, while the second man longed to be fed with food that fell from the first man's table. Do you see this divide? Rich, poor, Clothes, sores, full, hungry, this inequality between these two men. However, the most significant point in these verses is when Jesus tells us the relative location of one man to the other. Jesus says that Lazarus, the poor man, was laid at the rich man's gate. Every time the rich man would come and go from his property, he would pass by Lazarus. Pastor Mark has remarked in the past that it's highly likely that when the rich man entered his property, he would have had to physically step over Lazarus in order to gain access to his property. And this right here offers us the insight into the main tension in this passage. And and it also tells us what's the first point that Jesus is teaching us in this passage, and it's this. Injustice is real. Injustice is real. You see, in Jewish society, the gate was the place where judgment was made. It was the place where the the men of the city or the town would gather together, they would bring their disputes, the other men would hear them out, and then they would decide what is the just or right course of action. And yet, Here, in this story, it is at the gate, the place of justice, that we find great injustice. Every day, a rich man who has food and clothing to spare walks past a a poor man who's covered in sores, who'd who'd be happy just with a scrap from the rich man's table, and yet the rich man, the passage implies, never once helps. Now, whatever the reasons for the poor man's poverty, I think that we can all agree that what Jesus is saying here is that this is unjust. This is an injustice that results from their inequality of wealth. But when God created the world, he didn't intend for such inequalities to even exist. In the Garden of Eden, there was abundant provision for all. But we threw that away because we weren't satisfied. We were greedy. We wanted more. We wanted to be like God himself. So we threw away our chance of an abundant life for everyone, and we were cursed. 
And as a result, inequalities of wealth began to creep in. And it didn't take long for injustice to arise as a result. Adam and Eve's sons, Cain and Abel. Cain murdered Abel. Why? Because he was envious of what Abel had. There was an inequality of wealth, and it resulted in an injustice. But, but God had a solution. His solution was to choose a specific group of people, a family, and to bless them that they might be a blessing to the whole world. God chose a man and called him named Abraham and all of his descendants after him, and he blessed them in a multitude of ways so that they might be a blessing to others. He gave them rules, laws for how they should live their life. And in those laws, God commanded his people that they must take care of the poor. Now, his people did not do this. But God sent prophets to them who came to them and they said, look, you must obey God's laws. And in particular, you must bring justice to the poor. You are ignoring the poor in your midst. You cannot do that. And so when we read this passage... And we find out a little later on, the rich man is one of those descendants of Abraham. He's part of God's family. We know that he is ignoring God's commands regarding the poor man who is at his gate. We know that he is not acting out God's intent for his life as a a part of the family of God. We know this is not just an inequality of wealth, but this is actually an injustice. An injustice that has resulted from that inequality of wealth. And injustice that results from inequality of wealth is real. It is real. It really happens. So that's the first point that Jesus makes in this story today. It's not just an inequality of wealth, it's an injustice. And it's real. But here's the second point. Real justice is incoming. First, injustice is real. Second, real justice is incoming. Now, I know that that word incoming isn't one you'd normally use in your butchered, Americanized version of the English language. (laughs) But in England, incoming means the process of arriving, like an incoming flight at an airport. Okay, so, and I'm going to stick with it because it actually helps tie all three points together in, in a way that's hopefully more memorable for all of you. So, injustice is real, but real justice is incoming. You see what I did there? Yeah? Okay, got it. The way things are is not the way things will always be. One day, real justice will arrive. And we find this out as we keep reading. Take a look, verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. So Jesus says the poor man dies, and he's carried by angels to Abraham's side, or Abraham's bosom, 
in the original language. Now, first century Jews believed that upon a person's death, an angel would escort the soul of the deceased to God. And that typically, that angel would actually be Satan. Satan means the accuser. And Satan would accuse the deceased person in the sight of God, and God would make a judgment. In this passage, we don't read about such an accusation, but we do read is that after Lazarus dies, an angel escorts him into a place of blessedness, into what we might call heaven. That's what Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side means. It's a metaphor for what we would normally refer to as heaven. So that's what happens to the poor man. But what about the rich man? The rich man dies, and Jesus says he is buried. That's kind of significant. In, Jewish, uh, in the Jewish community, they would get together, and they would honor the deceased through a burial. The poor man didn't get a burial. He just died. But the rich man was honored by the community. And yet, what happens to him after death? He is sent to Hades, the Greek term for the underworld, what we would call hell. Now, another interesting Jewish first century belief was that both those who were in heaven and those who were in hell, those who were in Abraham's side, those who were in Hades, could see one another in this post-death state. And, and Jews actually believed that this increased the joy of those who were in heaven and increased the torment of those who were in hell. And Jesus appears to affirm this belief here. As the rich man looks up and sees Lazarus, at Abraham's side. And he calls out to Abraham. He says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. This rich man's clearly in pain. This man who's been in comfort his whole life is now being tormented. But what he says next, the very next words, offer us a fascinating insight into this rich man's inner world. This is what he says, verse 24. He says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Do you see this picture? The rich man is in hell, being tormented. He's looking up at Lazarus, the man who every day had been laid at his gate, covered in sores, who who is in heaven. And he has the audacity in this position where he's lower than this man to still think that Lazarus is worse than him and that Lazarus is a servant who can be ordered around. And he says, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to do that. Do you see the depth of the pride in this rich man's heart? And Abraham's response is to remind the rich man of just how good his life on earth had been and conversely, just how bad Lazarus's life on earth had been and that now they were reaping the consequences of their choices. And more than that, Abraham goes on to say that it would be impossible for anyone to pass between the state of blessedness and the state of damnation or or vice versa because a great chasm has been fixed between the two of them, presumably by God preventing the transfer of any persons from one side to the other. In other words, Abraham tells the rich man, you had your chance, you blew it, and now you will reap the consequences and there's no going back. So that's the second point that Jesus is teaching us. Real justice is in coming. Now a little aside here, this passage teaches us some important things about heaven and hell. The judgment that takes place 
in this passage is not the final judgment that's talked about at the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 20. That final judgment, the great white throne of judgment, it's often referred to, will take place at the end of time when the dead are raised to new life. They're given resurrection bodies and they will be judged. And the damned will be cast into a lake of fire and the blessed will be brought to a new earth where God will rule and reign, peace and justice will exist for eternity. This passage is talking about another judgment, a first judgment that occurs immediately on our death, when our souls are brought into the presence of God, and we are judged and sent to one of two intermediate places, commonly called heaven and hell. Now, both heaven and hell are temporary states of humanity, between our death and the final judgment after Jesus comes again. Our eternal state, the book of Revelation tells us, is not heaven, but a new earth, where we will live with resurrected bodies. But temporarily, between our death and Jesus' second coming, we are sent to either heaven, Abraham's bosom in this passage, or to hell, Hades in this passage, and there's no chance of switching sides after death. We get this life and this life only to choose where we will go. But of course, this then begs the question, on what basis will we be judged? On what basis will this real justice be incoming? Well, it might appear that this passage teaches that those who have wealth will go to hell, and those who don't will go to heaven. But that is not what this passage teaches, and that is not what the rest of Scripture teaches. The basis for judgment is found in the final few verses of this story to which we now turn. Let's take a look, verse 27 and following. And he, that's the rich man, said, then I beg you, he's speaking to Abraham, I beg you, Father Abraham, to send him, send Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he, the rich man, said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The rich man realizes at this point that there's no possibility of changing his own destiny. And so his thoughts turn to his his five brothers who are still alive. They still have a chance. And once again, he asks Abraham to send Lazarus to do something. That pride that's in his heart is deep. This time he asks, would you send Lazarus back from the dead? to go to my brothers and warn them of their destructive paths. However, Abraham's response is to tell the rich man that they already have all that they need. His brothers already have all that they need to avoid the path of destruction. They already have Moses and the prophets. That is, they already have the Old Testament of the Word of God. Abraham says that if they would only listen to what this says, they would be saved. And yet the rich man persists. He says, that's not good enough. Perhaps he's reflecting on his own 
failure to listen to the word of God and respond to it. The rich man says, but if someone would come back from the dead, they would listen to him. And Abraham retorts and says, if they won't listen to the word of God, what makes you think that they're going to listen to someone who comes back from the dead? Abraham says, the word of God is sufficient. And this brings us to the answer to that crucial question that I asked earlier, on what basis will we be judged? Jesus tells us that we will be judged based upon our response to the revelation of God in his word. We will be judged based upon how we respond to what is revealed to us in this book, the Bible. The rich man had the word of God and he ignored it. He lived life how he pleased and now he's reaping the consequences of those actions. And this is the third point Jesus makes in this passage. First, injustice is real. Second, real justice is in coming. Third, real justice is in Christ. The whole of the word of God points to Jesus Christ, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It all reveals Jesus to be the fulfillment of God's promise to rescue and redeem this world, and that through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we are ransomed from death and can be welcomed into the family of God. And how we respond to this revelation of Christ in the word of God will be the basis for judgment after death. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 3. He writes, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us, if we were judged based on our own actions, our own merits would fall short. But he goes on to say, but are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. If we are judged based on our own actions, we will fall short and we would be sent to hell. But if instead we accept the work of Jesus Christ for us, revealed to us in the scriptures, we can be justified by God's grace as a gift. Real justice is in Christ. We will be justified, not based on our own works, but based on Christ's work revealed to us in the Scriptures. So if you're here listening online, maybe you, you're hoping that the things that you've done in this life will be, will be good enough to get you into heaven. But when you stand before God at the end of your, after your death, at the end of your life, and you say, God, I I, I tried really hard to, to love people. I, I went to church. I, I, I gave to the poor when I could. I, you know, I, I tried to pray and read the Bible. If, if that's what you think you're going to be saying when you stand before God after your death, then I have bad news for you. That will not justify you. That will not save you. But here's the good news. If you throw yourself upon Jesus Christ, if you trust in his work rather than your work. You will be saved. God has made a way through Jesus for anyone who wants to, to be justified. And on that day when we stand before God, instead of God looking at us and seeing what we have done, instead he will look at us and see what Jesus has done. And if you throw yourself upon Jesus, if you put your faith in him, if you trust in his work, you will be justified and you will be welcomed into eternal blessedness. So trust, receive that gift of grace by faith today. And in a moment, if you've 
never done that, I'm going to offer you a chance to make that decision. But what does all this mean about the injustices we see in the world today and our response to them? Well, the implication of this story is that if the rich man had responded to the revelation of God's word with repentance, he would have behaved differently towards Lazarus. He would not have allowed the injustice to continue, but would have taken care of the poor man who was laid at his gate, covered in sores and longing for food. Not that these actions would have saved the rich man, but they would have been evidence of his internal response to the revelation of God. And in the same way, we can never be saved by seeking to right the injustices of this world. We can never be saved by giving to those who are in need. We can never be saved by serving those who are in need. We can never be saved by seeking to buy ethically sourced goods. We can never be saved by our own work to right the wrongs of injustice in this world. But if we have been saved by Jesus, we will demonstrate that salvation by changing how we interact with those in this world around us, especially those who are financially less wealthy than ourselves. If we have been saved by Jesus, we will live as generous people, freely giving of our time and money. If we have been saved by Jesus, we will not live with blinkers on, ignoring the poverty that is around us in this world. If we have been saved by Jesus, we will do all we can to right the injustices of this world. Not because it will save us. Only Jesus can save us. No, we will do it because Jesus gave everything for us, and as a result, we will give everything for him. That is our call as followers of Christ. One part of our five-year vision here at Chapel Hill is to love and serve our local community with mercy, care, and compassion so that if the church ceased to exist, our neighbors would cry out for our return. And in this next year, we want to invite you to do this specifically through your life groups. We want to see every single life group serving alongside one of our local projects or partners. Earlier this year, my life group were meeting together and this great conviction fell on our whole group that we needed to do something about the injustices that those who are homeless experience. Um, we wanted to do something that, that would actually help rather than hurt. We didn't want to contribute to the problem, so we, we reached out to the expert in our midst. Chandra Hallam is our local outreach coordinator. And we said to her, what can we do? We said, would you come to our group and, and do some teaching for us? And, and at the same time, we decided that we would build what are called compassion kits. These are kits that have some basic supplies in, the, in them that those who are vulnerably housed need. Things like socks, toothbrushes, toothpaste, water, snacks, band-aids, deodorant, sunblock, hand wipes. And on one Monday night, we got together when we normally would to build the kits, and Chandra shared with us about the challenges that those who are homeless face and how we can respond. And in the end, each of us took home six of these kits. We put them in our family vehicles with the desire that if we were to see someone who is homeless, that we could pull over, grab a kit out of the back of the car, walk over to this person, ask them if they would like it, and have a conversation with them. 
And a number of our group have already had a chance to do just that. Our hope is that every single one of our life groups will be serving in in a way like that. It may not be just like that. It may be with one of our other partners. Maybe it'll be with the the Habitat House. We've got an information meeting next Sunday at 10 a.m. if you want to be part of building this Habitat House in Gig Harbor. Or or maybe it'll be partnering with Coffee Oasis who who minister to homeless teens. Or or maybe it'll be with the Northwest Furniture Bank if if you like to build furniture. They supply furniture to those who don't have it. But one year from now, we want to see every single one of our life groups connected with a local partner or project actively serving with mercy, care, and compassion. So if your life group is not yet connected, please speak to your life group leader and ask them to reach out either to Pastor Rachel, our pastor of life groups, or to Chandra Hallam, who I mentioned earlier, our local outreach coordinator, to figure out what would work best for your group. We want to resource you, equip you, empower you, enable you to do that. And if you're not in a life group, there is no better time to join our life group than September. Head to that life groups page on the website, as Pastor Rachel spoke about earlier, chapelhillpc.org slash lifegroups. Use the filters, find the one you want, or submit the form to, to Pastor Rachel. Join a life group. Be a part of a community that's going to support you in your faith journey, and that, a community that together you can serve to impact this world for Christ. So Jesus teaches us three things in this passage. Injustice is real. Real justice is in coming. Real justice is in Christ. And our response to this is to demonstrate the same love that Jesus gave to us to this world in order to bring justice to those places where there is injustice. We, the family of God, have been blessed so that we can be a blessing. That's our call as the church. So let's do that together. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that we do not come before you on our own merits, but based upon the work of Jesus for us and his life and his death on the cross and his resurrection. We throw ourselves upon Jesus this morning and trust that we are justified by your grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And Lord, I I don't doubt that there are some people here this morning or watching this, listening to this, who have not yet put their faith in Jesus, who have not yet said, I need to trust in Jesus' work, not my own work. So if that's you this morning, I ask that you would echo these words silently in your heart if you want to put your faith in Jesus. Say, Father, sorry that I've been trusting in my own actions and in myself to justify me. Thank you for sending Jesus in my place that I can be justified through him. Please send your spirit that I may be born again and may be changed forever that I may be able to carry out works of justice in this world, not because it'll save me, but out of love for what you have done for me. In Jesus' name. And Lord, we pray for all of us that you would forgive us for ignoring the injustices 
that surround us, that you would forgive us for our hardness of heart that would treat others as inferior to ourselves, just like the rich man did with Lazarus. Lord, I pray that you would give us a heart of compassion for those who are poor. Lord, that you would help us to be the hands and feet of Christ in this world, to minister the love of Jesus to those who so desperately need it. And Lord, we pray that as a result, this community would go, there is something there, there is some power there that is driving those people that I have to get to know and that they would come to know the power of the saving work of Jesus Christ in their own lives. Revive your church, revive our community, revive this nation, we pray that many would come to faith in you, that you may expand the bounds of that new earth to bring many, many, many new people together to live in peace and justice forever and ever under a true and righteous King, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington. Our worship services are Sundays at 9 and 10.30. We hope to see you there. To learn more about our upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org. mercy fills the streets To look upon the one who bled to save to walk with him for all eternity. And there will be a day when all will bow before him. There will be a day when death will be no more. Standing face to
join the resurrection and sit beside the heroes of the faith with one voice a thousand generations when justice will reign, when nothing will stand in the way of your rule. We long for that day, but until that day comes, Lord, put us to work. Put us to work that we may make it on earth as it is in heaven through your work in us by the power of your Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, come, fill us now that we who have been blessed richly might be a blessing to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us here this morning. Uh, We'll be back to normal next week. Looking forward to being back on the stage, but hope you appreciated this kind of little ad hoc setup today. Uh, Thanks to the team for putting it together. Uh, There's a group of people who make this stuff happen who you don't know them, but you know their work. And one of them, uh, it's his his last day with us today. He's moving away from us. Uh, His name's Keith. Keith, can you come out, out of the booth up there? Keith Hendrickson, I know you're operating the cameras. Keith has been operating the cameras for the last two years. It's his last Sunday. Would you say thank you to him? Um... I sent out a blog yesterday 
talking about this vision that we have for the, for the future of the church. And one of the ways that you can help us with that is to complete a survey. You'll find a link to it in the email that was sent. You'll find it in the guide. But uh, we would love as many people as possible to complete this survey. It lets us know as your church leaders how we are doing at helping you to engage in the mission and the vision that God has for Chapel Hill. The more people who respond, the more accurate we can be with planning and empowering you to be the church to be the hands and feet of Christ. So if you can complete that, just five minutes, please do that. Uh, If you need prayer for anything this morning, we've got a prayer team who are going to be available at the sides. Please head to them at the end of the service. And if you're new, Pastor Rachel is going to be back at the Woodwall. She has a, a gift for you. She'd love to meet you. Please go say hi to her and introduce yourself. We're really glad that you decided to join us this morning. And let me leave you with a blessing. The way we receive it around here is to raise up our hands like this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his perfect peace, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.